Welcome to Elite, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. You've been listening and watching a news conference at the conclusion of President Biden's first ever trilateral summit with the Prime Minister of Japan and the President of South Korea. In this meeting, the leaders agreed to a commitment to conduct annual military exercises and to continue their conversations by holding a summit together every year. Let's bring in CNN's Arlette Sines, who is live from Camp David, CNN's chief national security correspondent Jim Shudo, and CNN's Paula Hancock's reporting from Seoul, South Korea. Jim, let's start with you. So in addition to those uh, agreements, they also agreed to establish a new crisis hotline and tighter economic cooperation. Um, to quote the president, this was a big deal. Yeah. And the president also said this is not about China. He said it's about the relationship among these three nations. But the truth is, China is very much a unifying threat for the U.S., South Korea and Japan. And when you look at each of these steps here, these annual multi-domain exercises among the three nations, uh, the enhanced ballistic missile defense, uh, as well as this hotline, this agreement to consult with each other about how they're going to respond to threats, those all relate not just to North Korea, North Korean missiles, North Korean military buildup, uh, and North Korean threats, but very much to, to China. China is increasing its nuclear arsenal by an order of magnitude over the coming years. All these things are issues that those three nations agree on as a growing threat. And this president, this U.S. president, would not have been able to unite South Korea and Japan, who have a long history of difficulties between the two of them, without that unifying force, really, of China, which is, extends, frankly, beyond those three nations uh, in Asia. There are a number of other Asians, na nations that are watching China's growth, its military expansion, uh, w with some alarm. The other, only other point I would make, Bianca, is this. It, it's notable to hear two Asian leaders with the U.S. president speak so prominently about Ukraine, because even though Ukraine is many thousands of miles away from them, they look at that as a precedent and they want to make clear not just to Russia, but also to China, that they and the world are going to, going to unite uh, in terms of defending and opposing that kind of territorial aggression. So it's not just China that's unifying them. It's also Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, that's an important point to make, Jim, and it's worth noting that not only did they support and continue to provide support for Ukraine, but they also increased their own defense budgets following uh, Russia's invasion last year. Uh, Paula, let me turn to you because this really took political courage from both leaders of South Korea and Japan to put aside their strained past in order to come together. President Yoon, in particular, helped set this in motion earlier this year. Talk about the significance of this meeting and the mixed reviews that it has received thus far in Seoul. Yes, Bianca, I mean, it's, it's certain that, uh, that President Yoon did come to power saying that he wanted this relationship to be improved. It's not a popular thing to say here in South Korea. In fact, similar uh, situation in Japan. There are decades of tension and mistrust between these two nations uh, stemming from Japan's colonial past. And there are historical grievances which have not been resolved. They are still ongoing. And there is a very deep felt and often emotional feeling here in South Korea uh, that this should not go ahead. When you look at public opinion polls, there is still a sizable uh, amount of people that do not support this. They do not believe uh, that this should be going ahead. Uh, so for both President Yoon and also Prime Minister Kishida, they have spent significant political capital in even getting to this point. 
But as Jim said, they do share common threats. When you look at North Korea, the uh, increasing launches and missile uh, tests we have seen, some of those even going over Japan's territory. Uh, so certainly they share these common threats. They both felt the economic and the, the military might uh, of the rise of China's threat as well. So this is why they are there today. Uh, Bianna? Yeah, and Arlette, it's worth noting that this president, President Biden, was able to achieve something that his predecessors were not able to in bringing these two countries together and really fulfilling and following through on his pledge to, to pivot to Asia. Yeah, Bianna, and it really speaks to President Biden's goals and the arguments that he made back in 2020 and now since becoming president that strong alliances are critical to the U.S. Uh, cornerstone of foreign policy here. And that is why the president has taken great steps to try to nurture these relationships with bilateral partners, but then also bringing them into this trilateral agreement. The president today hailing this as a new era of cooperation between the three countries. Of course, the president talked about uh, their need to work together when it comes to addressing uh, concerns about North Korea. He noted that they will have those intelligence sharing agreements uh, when it comes to both uh, missile threats uh, as well as cybersecurity. The president also uh, noting that the summit wasn't about China, but that is the underpinning of so much of his efforts in the Indo-Pacific as he's trying to bring allies together as there is that rising concern about China's economic and military power. I will say at the end, he did note that he hopes to meet with President Xi this coming fall. And Arlette, the president couldn't escape being asked about domestic issues as well. Specifically, he was asked about Hunter Biden and the special counsel. What did he say? Well, I asked President Biden at the very end how the special counsel would impact the 2024 election. He did not answer that question. But a bit earlier, he was specifically asked about the special counsel now investigating his son, Hunter Biden. He said that he would not comment and would defer questions to the Justice Department. That is pretty standard for the way that this White House has approached these investigations, be it uh, relating to former President Donald Trump or the president's son, Hunter Biden. Of course, this is an issue that Republicans continuously uh, try to bring up as they're trying to uh, paint the Biden and family as corrupt, something that the White House has consistently pushed back on. But this, uh, the issue of Hunter Biden is certainly to play, going to play out as this 2024 election campaign heats up. All right, Arlette Signs, Jim Shudo and Paula Hancocks will continue to follow this very important development. Thank you so much. Well, coming up, Hurricane Hillary is barreling toward the Baja California Peninsula and the southwestern United States. And a year's worth of rain could fall, get this, in just one day some of the driest parts of the country. Then FEMA says its disaster fund is already running out of money before hurricane season has truly even started. And last week's wildfires in Maui could cost billions more. I'll ask a FEMA official on the ground in Lahaina about their plan. We're back now with our national lead. You are looking at Category 4 Hurricane Hillary tearing its way through Mexico today, heading north to potentially drop a year's worth of rain on parts of the southwestern United States in just a day or so. It's triggering the first ever tropical storm warning for California and the first ever level four of four threat in one part of the state. We're also following, of course, the devastating aftermath of the hurricane-fueled fires that turned parts of Maui to ruins. As of now, we know at least 111 people lost their lives, and only about 45 percent of the impacted area has been searched as of last night. 
But let's begin with an update on Hurricane Hillary. Our meteorologist Chad Myers is in the CNN Weather Center. Chad, when will the storm reach the U.S. and what can we expect once it's here? I think the rain probably starts tomorrow afternoon. And we hope that's the case. And I'll tell you why. Because we hope the ground is wet before the wind blows 60. Because if the wind's blowing 60 in a desert, in a place that hasn't seen a lot of rain so far this summer at all, you could see fires before the hurricane hits and comes to put those fires out. So these are called precursor rains. They come in before the hurricane, kind of on some of the outer bands. Two o'clock advisory, 145 miles per hour. Now there is some good news. The Hurricane Hunter aircraft just flew through this. It left Biloxi in a prop C-130. Flew all the way to the storm and now is going back up towards Southern California. But it found that the pressure was not as low and it found the winds are not as high as the satellite estimates. That's good news. It may not even be a Cat 4 right now. We'll have another update at 5 o'clock. A lot of times the Hurricane Center just kind of lets it go for the entire next run to see if another plane goes in. But the first tropical storm watch ever in California from this storm. It is going to be a very big storm, whether it's where it is now or not. The storm does head on up toward into much colder water, and that's the only thing that's gonna stop this 130, 150 possible mile per hour hurricane from being a huge impact to Southern California. Two impacts though, we're still gonna see winds to 60, that'll bring trees down. We're also going to see the potential significant rainfall. Right now, the storm is in middle 80s, upper 80 degree water. By the time it gets closer to California, middle 60s, that will kill it. But will it kill it in time? So much rainfall still to come. And as you said, a level four of four for significant flash flooding possible. The first time this ever happened out here in the southwest. We'll take whatever good news we can get. We'll be watching this closely and coming back to you. Chad Myers, thank you. Also topping our national lead, searchers on Maui are still digging through the charred remains of more than 2,000 burned homes and businesses. It's the aftermath of the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than 100 years. At least 111 are dead and more than 1,000 still missing. CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir is on the ground in Maui. Bill, what are you seeing there today? Well, Bianca, we are at a, a community meeting. It's just wrapping up. I'll send Avelio in to get some shots here. They just were singing after a press conference. The community leaders called to make their demands for the recovery right now. Number one, they want time to grieve. They're asking Governor Josh Green not to rush the reopening. Number two, put community first in rebuilding this place. Fast-tracking this cannot come at the expense of community involvement, they're insisting. And number three, there's a Chapter 92 sunshine law in Hawaii that uh, mandates transparency in these big decisions when it comes to building. And you got to understand the context, not just the trauma these folks are going through right now, but generationally, since Captain Cook, who was the first outsider, ended up trying to kidnap the King of Hawaii and, and a skirmish was killed in the surf, generation after generation of outsiders have come in here and changed this place, often for the worse. Plantation sugarcane owners changed the ecology of the land around Lahaina, and that's a water fight that's still ongoing. They said here that uh, the water in this place is controlled 75% of it by private interests. There's a fight now about 
whether or not uh, water rights had something to do with uh, fire hydrants not having enough pressure as firefighters were trying to put out their own neighborhoods. Um, so there's that piece of it, but they're really worried that they will be pushed out again, as has been the case uh, in so much of Hawaii's history of native lands getting the short end of the deal right now. As for the search and rescue, I spoke with some uh, dog teams from L.A. County Fire. Um, the dogs are actually burning their paws because there's so many hot spots still in this three and a half square mile uh, area that they're trying to sift through almost on a granular level. The fact that they've only identified six of the 111 tells you the forensic challenge of this and how long it'll take and that missing number. The governor last told us over a thousand people at this point, how these many days after and so much of communication has been restored, you would think you get contact, you get confirmation that especially those kids are alive, um, but they're coming to grips with the idea that who knows if, if some of them will ever be uh, found. Biana? Yeah, that's exactly what I'll be asking our next guest, uh, Bill Weir. Thank you. And FEMA spokesperson John Mills joins us now from Hawaii. So, John, I don't know if you were able to hear Bill, but the death toll now standing at 111. We see reports that more than 1,000 people are still missing. As noted, it's now been 10 days since the fire. Most people by now have had access to some cell phone service. Based on what you and your teams are seeing, are you bracing for what could be a profoundly unthinkable death toll? Bianca, good to be with you. Uh, I think your correspondent, Bill Weir, captured the tone very well. A lot of things are taking place here, and unfortunately, the FEMA urban search and rescue teams that are searching for those who are still unaccounted for don't have a lot of really good news in terms of finding survivors. Uh, they're working really hard. We have doubled the number of search dogs uh, so now 40 or more working in that area, but uh, as has been reported, it's a challenging environment in which to work. Uh, so we're working very closely with Maui County officials and also state emergency management on this very challenging task, while also at the same time prioritizing disaster survivors. And we've already approved more than 2,000 households who've been affected by the fires for FEMA disaster assistance. I know you say you're working very hard, but many Maui residents are saying the government help is still lacking so many days after the fact. I want to read for you what one resident told the Washington Post. We hear that we have lots of provisions, whether it be through FEMA or Red Cross, but everybody is on a different page. Emergency services and organizations that should be coordinated and organized in the public eyes have completely fallen through. What is your response to that assessment? I was just meeting this morning with a community organization just down the street from here. That cultural center, which had a significant amount of damage, uh, opened up a point of distribution with food, water, clothing, and other emergency supplies right after the fires struck at the post office, and then they moved to another location. Maui County has opened a distribution center at a, at a shopping center just across the street. FEMA is working closely with state emergency management and Maui County emergency management to make sure that those locations and shelters don't run out of supplies. So FEMA is not in charge. The state is in charge. Maui County is executing the emergency management response. And FEMA is coordinating across the entire federal government, bringing all federal resources to bear 
to help meet the needs that we hear about from the state. Are you satisfied thus far with the state's response? I think that's a question for the state. Uh, FEMA is doing everything we can to support this historic event, uh, and it is incredibly difficult. We are working across multiple lines of effort in close coordination with Maui County and the state. We're talking about emergency services, mass care, critical infrastructure, and temporary housing. FEMA has activated a program called Transitional Sheltering Assistance. That's a FEMA hotel program. The state also has a hotel program. So right now, this temporary housing is helping people move out of shelters and into hotels. This is actively happening right now. So that's a first step. But we'll also be working long term with survivors and Maui County on longer term challenges. And there are a lot of them, including taking necessary steps to begin to allow people to think about rebuilding on their land. We know that this area has incredible historic significance, and that's why we are listening to local officials and listening to local residents about cultural sensitivities and working hand in hand with Maui County embedding in their emergency operations center so that we're all working together as one big team. Well, FEMA is also facing its own challenges. Its disaster fund is already running out of money and could be depleted by the end of this month. The agency has enough for the initial response to Maui, but but long-term funding could be an issue if Congress doesn't pass a spending bill. How would this impact the people of Maui? We're working closely to make sure we have all the resources necessary for people affected by the wildfires in West Maui. All right. Well, John Mills, thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy there on the ground. We appreciate it. New images show just how destructive that wildfire was in Lahaina. Just look at this. Home after home after home just gone, wiped away. You can help survivors get back on their feet. If you head to CNN.com impact for options to donate. You can also text the word Hawaii to this number, 707070. Well, up next, what Trump's legal team says happened when they tried to download evidence from the special counsel in the federal election interference case. In our Law and Justice lead, we're learning more about what the booking process could look like for former President Donald Trump when he turns himself into the Rice Street Jail in Fulton County, Georgia, next week for his fourth arrest. CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray joins me now. So, Sarah, we know Trump's legal team has already been in touch with the district attorney about how his surrender will work. What more are you learning about that? That's right. Those conversations are expected to continue into next week in person so they can work out the details of bond and the details of release. Because you don't want to show up at this jail in Fulton County if you are the former president of the United States without a bond agreement in place. This is a jail that has been plagued by a number of problems that is the uh, subject of a federal civil rights investigation. And what Trump and what the Secret Service are going to want is to get him in and out of there essentially as quickly as possible. Again, the sheriff there 
there has said these defendants will be treated the same as any other defendants. That would include a mugshot. That would include fingerprints. We're waiting to see if that actually happens. You know, normal defendants can spend hours sitting around there waiting to be processed. Obviously, we do not expect them to keep the former president waiting like that. I talked to attorneys who said he could be essentially in and out of there in as little as 15 minutes if everyone is there prepared to to intake him. And Sarah, Trump also said he was going to host an event Monday to unveil a report about the 2020 Georgia election. That is no longer happening now, right? (laughs) No, he has called off what he was uh, hailing as this press conference to talk about election fraud, to talk about uh, baseless allegations of election fraud in Georgia. And it seems that cooler heads have prevailed and convinced him that this may not be the best approach, not only because he has this pending case, obviously, in Georgia, but also because he has a pending case in federal court related to election interference, Biana. Yeah, sounds like you listen to his attorneys and advisors. And in another Trump case, this is the January 6th special counsel trial. Trump's attorneys are pressing for a trial date well after the 2024 election. We're talking years. What are they asking for specifically? That's right. I mean, the the government in this case, the Justice Department, suggested January 2024 for a trial date, and the Trump team shot back. How about April of 2026? So there's a pretty big mm-hmm. gap there. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the judge, of course, to set the trial date in this case. But Trump's team is arguing, one, he's got a lot on his plate in terms of other legal matters, which, of course, we know to be true. And two, they're taking issue with the amount of discovery that's in this case. They say it's millions and millions of pages, that it's going to take a while for them to be able to be able to prepare a sufficient defense for the former president. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you. Thanks. Want to bring in Karen Friedman Agnipolo. She was the chief assistant district attorney for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. This is the same office where Alvin Bragg is currently prosecuting the hush money case against Donald Trump. That was the first indictment. Um, Karen, good to see you. So let's start with the Fulton County election interference case. Trump's legal team is still negotiating, as we heard from Sarah, the terms of jail release and bond. What do you think is at issue with these negotiations? I think they're going to be discussing exactly what will be and won't be done to the president, because most people, when they show up to a jail to surrender, you sit and you wait your turn. You get you get searched. You get uh, your fingerprints taken, your mugshot taken. You have to fill out paperwork and you could be there for hours. And you also have to negotiate terms of release and bond, et cetera. So I think they're going to want to negotiate all of that ahead of time and get him in as quickly as possible. And certainly, what will the conditions of any of his release be? What will the bond be? What will the bail be? Also, um, sticking in Fulton County, prosecutors say that it was Kenneth Cheesebro who wrote memos spelling out a fake elector's plan for six states. And today, new CNN K-File video shows him at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th following around conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, just as Congress was inside trying to certify the election. What do you make of this connection here? So one of the major defenses for Donald Trump in these cases is I was relying on my attorney, right? And that's going to be one of his defenses. It's called advice of counsel. And that requires you to, in good faith, rely on uh, on your lawyer's advice. And if your lawyer made a mistake and gave you bad advice by accident, then you might not be responsible if you accidentally committed a crime. What this shows, I think, is this was not a good faith legal advice given to Trump. This was 
was an activist lawyer who part of his strategy and you, you, there were emails that that Jan, the January 6th Select Committee also had showing an email between Mr. Cheeseboro and, and, and Mr. Eastman, the two architects of the January uh, 6th um, strategy. And part of that was to create havoc and destruction and chaos, hoping that that would put pressure on the Supreme Court later on when this matter ultimately, if they could get away with their fake elector scheme, you know, getting getting that in front of the Supreme Court. So this is part of the plan. And having him there on the ground as part of that chaos and watching it, that goes beyond legal advice. And I think it puts him much more, uh, I think it takes a, that, that the defense away from, from Donald Trump uh, significantly, and it makes him much more of a participant on the ground than just a lawyer giving advice. Let me turn now to the federal election interference case. Uh, Trump's legal team, as you heard, wants to push that trial date to April of 2026 They argue that prosecutors spent two years investigating and the evidence alone is over a million pages. In a filing, Trump's team wrote, we began downloading the government's initial production on January, on August 13th. Two days later, it was still downloading. Have you ever seen a defendant propose a trial date nearly three years after indictment? Well, certainly, uh, if a defendant does not want to go to trial ever, yes, that's what they would do. I mean, this normally it's it's the other way around. It's normally the, the government asking for more time and the defendant put, you know, holding the government's feet to the fire and demanding a speedy trial. This is, but this is different. I don't think Donald Trump really wants uh, to ever go to trial. Right? He wants to try this in the court of public opinion and try to win over everybody and become president and then not be responsible for any of this. So this is just part of the delay tactic that he's shown in every one of his cases, right? This is, he, he, he's, he, it's like a shell game that he goes to court and says, I can't be ready on this case because I have the other case. But then he goes to court on the other case because I can't be ready on this case because I have this other case. And, and you know, he, he's really using that same excuse for all of the cases. And this one really is the most simple and straightforward. There's only one defendant, Right. It's not like Mar-a-Lago where there's three defendants and three defense attorneys and three different lawyers making issues. And you don't have a morass of classified documents. There's some small classified document issue, but it's not this is not a classified documents case. And there's only four charges. Right. So it's a much easier case. One defendant, four charges. And and having that much discovery is slightly disingenuous. I mean, yes, there is a lot of discovery, but a lot of it is duplicates and email headers and stuff that that we, we would call junk. Um, there's really, you know, it's a much smaller number of actual substantive discovery. Yeah, Jack Smith wants this trial to begin in January of 2024. Um, let me get you to, to weigh in on what we're just hearing at CNN. A senior law enforcement official is telling our Ryan Young that Donald Trump is expected to surrender to Fulton County Jail next Thursday or Friday. Remember that deadline uh, that was set was for next Friday. What do you what do you make of that news? Well, he's certainly not rushing there, right? He's he's waiting to the last possible minute, and and he's making the arrangements, you know, of when he's going to come in and how that fits in with his schedule, et cetera. So, yeah, I heard the same thing as well that it was for next Thursday or Friday, and I think he's just going to want to take. He's not going to want to go in advance, right? He's, he he wants to go last or let everyone else go first, let other people go first, see what happens to them, see how it goes, and learn from there, and, and be one of the last ones. Uh, across the finish line. Okay, okay. we'll wait and see. Um, Karen Friedman-Agnifilo, thank you so much. Have a great weekend.
Thank Tomorrow you. night, a CNN original series follows the evolution of Rudy Giuliani. It's called Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor? That is tomorrow night at 8 Eastern. Then on Sunday, don't miss the whole story with Anderson Cooper. This week, the show breaks down the criminal indictment of Donald Trump. That is Sunday night at 8, right here on CNN. Well, President Trump is expected to skip the presidential, the Republican first presidential debate. So what does he plan to do instead? We'll talk more about that up next. In our 2024 lead, just moments ago, Nikki Haley finished speaking at the Atlanta, Georgia event, The Gathering. It comes as several other GOP presidential hopefuls spoke earlier in the day, including Mike Pence, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis. CNN's Eva McKen joins us now from The Gathering in Atlanta. Eva, Donald Trump did not attend this event and the moderator, Eric Erickson, for the most part, did not ask the candidates about him. So, so what issues did you hear them talk about instead? That's right, Biana. While Georgia is not as immediately consequential as Iowa or New Hampshire, it is still a battleground state. And with Trump not in the mix sucking up the oxygen, what we heard is candidate after candidate, about 45 minutes each in conversation with this conservative radio host, uh, getting to talk about a wide range of issues. Chief among them, or something that came up time and time again, universal here, was this real pushback against the bureaucracy and really them uh, talking repeatedly about uh, reimagining the federal government. Take a listen. It's time to fire Joe Biden. We need to clean out the entire DOJ. We need to clean out the White House staff. We need to clean out all the political appointees so that we can restore confidence and integrity. If I'm president of the United States, uh, we're going to get a new chairman at the Federal Reserve. Now, Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp also spoke today, his associated PAC, a co-host of this event. That is in part how Eric Erickson was able to put this on. We, of course, know that Governor Kemp and Trump uh, do not have much of a relationship, Biana. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, what did you hear from the candidates about preparations for next week's debate? Yeah, so after uh, his remarks, Vice President Pence actually was the only one to stop and speak to reporters. And he got a lot of questions about Trump, but he steered the conversation to next week. And he seemed to say that he was really going to focus on kitchen table issues, on uh, mortgage rates, on the economy, uh, and uh, steer this conversation to how he thinks he would be the best person to go up against President Biden. Take a listen. When I reach that debate stage next week, we're going to be talking about the issues the American people are focused on. Is, is the former president's lead right now just insurmountable? What can you do to catch up at this point? Well, just watch and learn. So watch and learn, uh, the former vice president tells me. Listen, another long day tomorrow with a host of speakers, among them Vivek Ramaswamy and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Former uh, Congressman Will Hurd will speak as well. Biana. All right, Eva McCann, thank you. CNN senior political commentator John Avalon and CNN political analyst Margaret Hoover join me now for more on this. It's good to see you guys. So, Margaret, let's start with you. Uh, Trump reportedly now plans to skip next week's debate. According to CNN's reporting, he may be turning himself in in Fulton County or, uh, Thursday or Friday. Instead, though, we hear that he may be sitting down for an interview with Tucker Carlson. Who knows if that changes by Thursday? He pulled this stunt before in a 2016 primary debate, but it didn't hurt him then. 
Do you think that he will be impacted at all among primary voters if he skips next week's? Well, if, if you recall, remember the debate he skipped back in 2016 was in Iowa, and he ended up coming in second in Iowa, not winning the state. Now he is leading far and away in Iowa, uh, but not necessarily. I mean, Chris Christie is number two, <coughs> excuse me, in New Hampshire. So I I do think he can afford to skip a debate. He can have a one-on-one -on -one with Tucker Carlson. Uh, this is long from over. It is extraordinary that the leading contender for the Republican nomination will not be, will skip a debate, will, will probably benefit from it, and then turn himself in for a mugshot the next day. It, yeah. it, it's just worth hitting with that point. Yeah. How many times can we say unprecedented? Um, John, <laughs> skipping the debate and instead giving an interview to Tucker Carlson would be an affront to both the RNC and Fox News. Do you view this as an opportunity for the other Republican candidates debating that night to go after him finally? And I'm, I'm referencing everyone other than Chris Christie. Yes, uh, it is if they choose to grow a spine and show that they're equipped to really lead. Um, look, loyalty with Donald Trump's a one-way street. Everyone should know that by now, none better than Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. um, but campaigns are fundamentally about contrasts. And those candidates who are too cowardly to draw a clear contrast with someone who's been indicted four, four times with 91 counts, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you other than you're not really running for president. You know, you're, 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 you're tiptoeing around something that offers the opportunity of real moral clarity. Uh, and, and it's incumbent on anyone who wants to be president of the United States to stand on a debate stage, say what they mean authentically, and make a case to the voters why they should be their party's nominee in the next president of the United States. You can't do that if you're afraid of a former president who tried to overturn an election. It's not tough. This isn't, this isn't complicated. We forget that. This, this question about skipping the debate, though, Biana, I do think, you know, he may be able to get it away with it once. I suspect he won't be able to sustain it. Because even if he is in the lead, I think Donald Trump likes to have the spotlight. He wants to have the attention. And frankly, he doesn't like not being able to respond in full force yeah. to a chorus of criticism that will come after him. Because it's not just Chris Christie who's going to be criticizing him on that debate stage. Mike Pence will be criticizing his actions on January 6th. He's showed no fear doing that. Will Hurd has That's hit right. the 40,000 uh, donation, uh, individual donors threshold, though he has not been led on the debate stage because he hasn't signed the pledge. Donald Trump hasn't signed the pledge either. So yeah. we will see how the RNC chooses to handle that. But there are there um, there's <laughs> there will be contrast. And I think Donald Trump will have a hard time resisting returning to try to offer a knockout punch as he sees it. Yeah. So maybe this is a one time debate that he can uh, afford to skip. John, let me get you to respond to what CNN is reporting today on the fallout, continued fallout from Super PAC backing DeSantis, sharing debate strategy memos online that called for DeSantis to, quote, hammer Ramaswamy and defend Donald Trump. So let me read this to you. One person close to DeSantis's political operation was surprised that a person that never backed down would even write a memo or think it was appropriate to give the campaign advice just a week out from the debate. The response this person received from Republican donors on Thursday was a, quote, chorus of people who think it was dumb, they said. How bad was this for the DeSantis campaign? 
I mean, it is yet another face plant in a campaign of face plants. It's a self-inflicted wound. But I mean, you got to love the irony of, of the, the pack being called never back down. The advice is, well, back down when it comes to Donald Trump. Um, you know, try to deflect that uh, and, and defend rather than, you know, speaking with authenticity. And of course, among the many problems this is, is that we're all going to have Ron DeSantis bingo card on debate night, figuring out how many times he checks the boxes according to what was recommended. Uh, so it's just a it, it's it's a lose lose. And it's tough to be in that in, in DeSantis's position. But he hasn't covered himself in glory in the process. Yeah. Never back down, I guess, except when it comes to, to Donald Trump, you can you can target everyone else. Margaret, DeSantis's competitors, Will Hurd and Chris Christie, are criticizing the part of DeSantis's campaign memo where it called on DeSantis to defend Trump. Take a listen to what they said. If you're afraid to take on Donald Trump, then you shouldn't be on that stage and you shouldn't be running for president. People are really beginning to wonder what the hell he stands for. And if what he stands for is defending Donald Trump, then just drop out of the race and endorse him. All right, what do you make of this strategy? We've now seen from several Republican candidates defending their main competition, and that's Donald Trump. I mean, if the theory was that the indictments alone would hurt Trump among primary voters, that hasn't happened, at least not yet. Well, I mean, what you're seeing, Biana, is how beholden the base of the Republican Party is, which is... Uh, they are self-identified Republican primary voters are overwhelmingly still supportive of Donald Trump. And even if they harbor some doubts about him, they don't like the other Republicans are hitting each other inside the tent. There is a little bit of this sort of 11th commandment, Ronald Reagan hangover, you know, thou shall not insult another Republican. It's okay if Donald Trump does it. Yeah, apparently. But, but for Republican primary voters, because they, there, I mean, there is this uh, sort of cult-like affinity almost to Donald Trump. They just don't like when other people are beating up on uh, somebody who has been seen as a standard bearer to the party. Look, I, I, I know I know that sounds crazy, but you asked what is happening, and that is why he continues to have such a pronounced lead. I do think Christie and Will Hurd are showing moral courage and clarity by standing up to him. And I do think there's a real chance that one of them could prevail in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah and, and, Christie, and look, it, it, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I want to hear what you say, what you have to say. I was just going to say that, look, you know, debates in particular are about authenticity, uh, authenticity. They're about clarity and crispness and moral conviction. Uh, and, and, and that's where I think you, you could see an, an opening here. You know, 37 percent of the Republican Party will back Donald Trump no matter what. That means a supermajority is, is either opposed or persuadable. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be persuaded by someone who has the courage of their convictions. That's right. That's just, that's human nature. Um, if we can end on what we started with, and that is our reporting from uh, a senior law enforcement official telling our Ryan Young that, that Trump is planning, as of now, to turn himself into Fulton County Jail next Thursday or Friday. Now, Fonnie Willis gave them a deadline of Friday, but with the debate the night before, there had been speculation as to whether this is something that Trump would try to do to sort of steal the thunder and attention away from either the debate on the debate night or the day after. Margaret, what do you think of that strategy politically? I mean, for Donald Trump, when he's leading in the headlines, it's helping him with the face of the Republican Party. Uh, that's just the way it's been. We've seen this every time an indictment has come down. Uh, the, the base of the party circles the wagons and gets behind Donald Trump. 
I am not persuaded that this is a winning strategy in the long term. It's not. <laughs> even even to re- win the Republican nomination. Um, but we have we have a, a pretty thick system of closed partisan primaries in this country, which has yielded candidates that do not appeal to the even the moderate, even to even to the broad base of a party, let alone the, the broad people. majority mm. of the American. And let me correct myself. It, the debate is actually Wednesday. So if he does turn himself in Thursday, I guess it could be taking away some of the thunder in the aftermath following well, it, the next it, day when it, we talk about the debate. John, go ahead. Right. But it's not the same day. And I think that's where some of the speculation had been. Would we have a split screen in effect? What this does, hypothetically, if it's Thursday, would suck up all the oxygen, which would be very Donald Trump bring the attention back to him rather than what happened the night before. But to Margaret's point, there is no universe. You can spin it any way you want. There's no universe where getting indicted a fourth time on 91 counts helps you in a general election. That's just reality. Yeah. Reality check from John Avalon. Margaret Hoover, John, good to see you both. Thank you. Well, Well, coming up Sunday on State of the Union, FEMA Administrator Dean Criswell, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, and former Obama White House Chief Strategist and Senior Advisor David Axelrod. That is Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern and again at noon right here on CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt, who is in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.